In today's supermarkets, we wouldn't know if our food came from a farm down the road or if it were grown in South America. It's all the same to us. Agriculture, especially food production, is a topic deeply rooted in development. It's too important to not pay attention to, but it's hard to know where to begin understanding it. We were pretty sure we wanted to do an episode about it, since both of us have worked quite deeply in the water sector. And so, to make sense of questions like, why do we grow what we grow, and how we grow, and to understand what sustainable food production could look like in the future, we decided to go local. And here's what we learned. Hello and welcome to In the Field, a podcast about India and development, hosted by Radhika Vishwanathan and Samyukta Varma. In the Field is supported by Rohini Nilekani Philanthropies. In this episode, we meet our local resident water expert, our local agricultural policy wonk, our local journalist who writes about Karnataka's countrysides, and our local organic shop owner. By the late 60s, India had suffered two devastating droughts, fought a war, and there was famine across the country. India could not afford to buy food on the international market. Many of us will remember studying about the United States Food for Peace Aid Program, commonly known as PL480, under which the US exported critical food grains such as wheat. And India was a customer. We may also recall the phrase, ship-to-mouth economy, which refers to our deep dependence on imported food that came straight off the ships and quite literally into our mouths. While our government's anxiety was real, this phase also spurred India to become self-sufficient in food production. This happened because of the Green Revolution, a combination of interventions introduced to improve food production. Firstly, the introduction of strong, high-yield varieties of wheat, the use of pesticides, fertilizers, irrigation infrastructure, and modern methods of farming and technology. This made all the difference, and we became self-sufficient in a mere 15 years, and it was a monumental achievement for our young country. So that has been the trajectory largely made possible uh, because of the Green Revolution that came in, uh, which was the need of the hour at that time. But after 60 years, what we realize is that uh, the Green Revolution per se, it has touched only 30% of the uh, scenario, agriculture landscape in the country. So large tracts of farmlands, large parts of people who plough those lands are still in the rainfed areas who have not derived the benefits of the Green Revolution. That's Bishwadeep Ghosh a program head at Arkham, an organization that works on domestic water, and he's making an important point. While the Green Revolution is credited for India becoming a great food producer, it also left out many parts of the country. It may surprise you to know that 70 years on from independence, 60% of Indian agriculture is still rain-fed. Not dependent on irrigation infrastructure, like surface water channeled through networks of canals, fed by dams or groundwater sources, but rather largely dependent on the vagaries of the weather. That's also why come every May you see politicians invoking the rain gods through prayers and other ministrations and of late small aeroplanes that do cloud seeding. 
Another facet of agriculture is that uh, 80% of our population or agriculture are smallholder farms who own less than 2 hectares. Now, that kind of land holding also doesn't lend itself to your green revolution kind of architecture of uh, public support. The areas Bishwadeep prefers to also have a huge overlap with the Indian poverty geography. And that makes sense. Poorer regions are less able to afford technologies and better yielding practices that the Green Revolution brought. The extent to which the vast masses of Indian farmers can use these technologies or even access them is limited. Around 60% of the total agricultural area in India is rain-fed and just under 40% is equipped for irrigation. Rain-fed agriculture only contributes around 45% of total agricultural production. Coupled with this is the fact that over the past 20 years, the average rate of growth of food grain yield has been declining. This is why we're speaking to Bishwadeep. His very first encounter with rural life was through an internship in the hinterland of Madhya Pradesh over 20 years ago. It was the first time he saw a village, he says, and even then, him and his peers observed that the people who made policies seemed far too removed from what was happening on the ground. He has since spent a large part of his career working on rural livelihoods and agriculture and has also been closely associated with a network of professionals called the RRAN, the Revitalizing Rain-Fed Agriculture Network. Their concern is to find ways to support rain-fed agriculture, which has often been sidelined in agricultural policy. So what's happened 50 years on? Uh, the impact of, uh, the, uh, of the Green Revolution is something that I think we've forgotten now in this generation. But it, in the 60s, in the late 60s, the introduction of the high-yield variety of uh, wheat and then the introduction of the high-yield variety of rice has had profound implications on our food habit but also on our general agricultural habit. So for one, the revolution created a nationwide water problem. The person you just heard is Vishwanath Srikantaya more often known as Zen Rainman Online. He's a water expert, a mentor in the water sector, and a friend to both of us. Vishwanath is tracing the path we took to self-sufficiency and its fallout. India is unique. We are a groundwater-dependent nation, and over 30 million wells used by millions of users dot the landscape of this country. But we've been using this largely unregulated water without much restraint. The search for more and more water to grow these high-yielding varieties of food along with all the fertilizer they need has led us deeper and further into the ground, leaving India today at the brink of a serious, if not potentially devastating, groundwater crisis. But then it came with such a great cost, which is uh, what we are now discovering. A, the complete pulling out of groundwater, and therefore the destruction of water security in all, all our habitations, because we are now a groundwater-dependent civilization. B, the import of fertilizers. We now have a 1 lakh crore bill for fertilizers and every gram of food that we grow seems to need a lot more fertilizers. And therefore the destruction of the soil, which came with the high yielding varieties. I think we are now catching up with that. And so that what we eat on our plate starts to determine the fate of uh, soil of our land, of the fate of our rivers, the fate of our wells is something that we don't understand. Our agricultural habit, as Vishwanath puts it, also brought with it a dependency on chemical fertilizers. And with every food cycle, every gram of food that we grow now seems to need a lot more fertilizer, which again needs more water. The pressure to produce more on a parcel of land, 
Combined with huge subsidies that's leading to unrestrained use of chemical fertilizer, have over time increased stress on the land. Farmers aren't using practices that they did in the past as much, like crop rotation or letting the land rest between growing cycles. And what we're seeing now is that alongside our water crisis, we have a soil fertility crisis. Crop diversity matters greatly to soil health. Here's Bishwadeep weighing in. And just to give you an example, for a large amount of subsidy goes in for uh, improving the soil fertility, which is urea, right? About 80,000 crores or even it has touched, uh, I think, 1 lakh crores in one year goes for uh, urea. Now, urea, uh, for it to get absorbed in the soil, it needs water. And you do not have water in large tracts of the land. So, uh, the use of urea itself is limited to the areas that are irrigated by water, which is around 30% of the uh, arable area. The larger philosophies behind the Green Revolution, more irrigation, more fertilizer subsidies and more technology, still hold good in much of agricultural policy today. Interestingly, in spite of the extent of rain-fed agriculture, there have been few limited dedicated public investments to support rain-fed crops. And rather than finding ways to support those who practice rain-fed agriculture, the current paradigm assumes that it is but one step behind irrigated agriculture in agriculture's larger trajectory, that we go from rain-fed farming to developing groundwater resources and finally moving towards irrigated crops. Like we said, it's all part of a broader philosophy. And let's not forget, we still have a soil degradation problem. So the question still holds good is that you need to improve the fertility of your soil. But is urea the best way to go about it? And secondly, is the subsidy that is required to improve the uh, fertility of the soil should go for urea or it should go for improving fertility in any other way that is possible. So that is just one example. A recent hint towards a progressive agricultural policy that seems to break the business-as-usual paradigm is Karnataka's support of local millets. So measures in Karnataka, uh, this agriculture minister, I must say, is pretty progressive and uh, he's been trying to promote, for example, the millets combined with the organic, uh, both of which from an agroecological point of view, it's one is a good, uh, it's, a, it's a non-chemical way of production which leads to healthy food and that has got links to your health, etc. So what he's been trying to do through the policy of uh, uh, Karnataka is to create a demand, market demand for millets that, that incentivizes production of millet and your cultivation of uh, millets and the area under millet cultivation increases actually. Millets are typical local foods that respect the hydrogeology. They are heavily water efficient and absolutely better for consumption than most other commercial crops. It's a move towards a more local way of farming and the government is using demand to drive production. This is great, but going forward we also need to make sure that this demand supports farmers and respects local food production cycles. But there's also this harmful side to local consumption. Uh, it's the kind of behavior we distribute, uh, we set in place. Tomato is a classic example. It's a seasonal crop. Now, if we create a seasonal demand for it, it's good. But if we make it an all-year demand, 
as we have done now, even at local consumption levels, we put enormous strain on the system, both in Kolar and Chikbalapur, if you take the example of Bangalore, which is about 100 kilometers from Bangalore, the tomatoes become a perennial crop and with the scarce water, tomato is grown and allowed to rot in the fields at points of time. So going local, but then respecting the seasons of growth is also important, equally important. Farmers are vulnerable. Data says that the majority of rural youth, given the chance, would move out of farming. From our urban viewpoint, the news reduces the large number of farmer suicides to a passing headline, to a number. But even with the protests last week, much of the conversation on the news, on our feeds, was peppered with hashtags like Farmers March or Long March, of photographs and snippets and sound bites. There were a few excellent reportages, but to the large extent, my feed was full of heart-wrenching photographs of the soles of farmers' feet, of their solar-charging jugaad, and of their nobility because they chose not to disrupt school exams. And a lot of skepticism. Are their claims legitimate? Rural life is incredibly complex, and to what extent do 240 characters do it justice? To learn about this, we spoke to Vikar Ahmed Saeed, a journalist who has covered the issue of farmer suicides in Karnataka for Frontline magazine. Vikar's piece on a spate of suicides amongst the sugarcane-growing farmers in northern Karnataka in 2015 is revelatory of the types of stresses that farming families face. His particular story looks at sugarcane, which is a cash crop, but really we hear this story so often, it could have been about any other crop. I don't know how to say this, see, but this apprehension that we have that perhaps people may not talk. Uh, but if you go to a rural area, you talk to anyone, they're always willing to talk, even in, in their profound uh, sadness. Vikhar is an unusual journalist. He writes long form on a range of topics from politics to religion and culture to rural India. He writes long, very detailed, very researched articles and earlier this year, he was awarded the B.G. Timapaya Award from the Karnataka Union of Working Journalists for reporting about economically weaker sections in society. It was raining heavily when we met him some time ago in Bangalore, and sitting in his makeshift office, we asked him to tell us why he writes about rural India and the challenges of writing about a world that we often find difficult to understand. It's not an idyllic life, right? This is the image that you start off with and uh, there's this great divide between urban, um, uh, I, I don't want to say India, but urban and the rural, and it's, it's very tight. It's not that at all. I mean, they're strongly linked to the city's economy, so they hinterland in some way supplying the city, but they, I mean, I don't know, they're intricate connections, so I, I try to decipher all this. In Vikar's article, he writes extensively about how farmers in Belgaum are caught in a vicious cycle of debt. And when the factories they supply to do not pay them fairly or buy on time, they spiral downwards, often leading them to suicide. And then we went to this village, and um, the village was a very pretty village. We went there two or three months, I think, after the suicide. So we were in the house of this farmer. We were there and I was trying to talk to his son. And he was very willing. He was very um, 
self-effacing. And so I had to draw him out, and but but they, they cooperate, right? They talk, and they have nothing to lose. In my article, I remember they published pictures of his passbook. I don't know if you saw that. So so you see, he committed suicide on a particular day, and the next day, the sum owed to him is deposited. I mean, what else? It, it's it's black and white, right? How do you begin to understand what agrarian distress in India is like? How do you make sense and write about fundamental structural issues in India, like poverty, caste, or economic shocks, and that too in a way that resonates with today's urban readership, one that needs short, condensed snippets of information? The way we are trained to think, I mean, even on a question of poverty, right? How do you gauge poverty? In, in a rural area, it's extremely difficult. We have indices, but then, I mean, you have to locate it in terms of social privileges and then in terms of um, their uh, connections to the cities. So it becomes extremely complicated. You don't have an objective metrics to determine poverty, right? Okay, does he has his own land. Does that mean he's rich or does it mean he's poor? Okay, he's a Dalit, but he has his own land. So what does this mean? Has he transcended his uh, social backwardness? So these are all kinds of questions, right? And, and it's quite, it's a muddle in your head. I mean, it's, it's, it's all up to me, right? Do I call him prosperous? Do I call him poor? How do I gauge it? I have to make decisions quickly, right? That's the difference between an academic and a journalist. And then there are aspects of rural economy and society we have to understand. All farming happens uh, on, a, on a cycle of loans. And I didn't even know that. I was like, why are you taking loans? Well, where do we get the money to sow and, and to plant and to do all this? And then if the crops, if there's a good harvest, they're able to pay off their loans. And, and usually these loans are interest-free for a certain period. So, but if the if there is a drought or if there is an agricultural inf- disease, if they aren't able to harvest, so they don't they're, they're not able to return a loan. So they're taking another loan, and they're stuck. And and then I mean aspects of rural economy also we have to understand if they have a I mean dowry for instance, you know marriages, uh, building houses. These are huge expenditures that the capital expenditures that they incur. Right? I mean, you go to them and then you say, oh, you have so many problems, why don't you just sell your land? But land is honor for them. Vikar learned his tricks of the trade and the job, using intuition and immersing himself in villages with people. And he says that while there are very few people writing about rural India in agriculture today in the mainstream media, there's also very little training out there for journalists on how to do so. So it's incredibly difficult. How do you... How do you make sense, right? Now, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm getting a semblance of understanding, but uh, ju- as journalists, we aren't trained, right? I remember I went to the Asian College of Journalism where we have a rural affairs uh, component. So we, we, we are out for a week, we go to villages, but um, to understand the rhythm of village life, it, it is possible to do because people are accessible, but it, it, you, you need to be invested in it. So you, I, I mean, journalists usually go for a short time, right? 
you're asking very pointed questions and then you get out but if we if we want the quality of a journalism to improve we we need to be trained and i think that's missing and so that what we eat on our plate starts to determine the fate of uh, soil of our land of the fate of our rivers the fate of our wells is something that we don't understand and so the power that we exercise over the system by just what we cook in our kitchen and what we consume is phenomenal so we must ask ourselves what is it that i'm eating and what implications does it have on the overall ecosystem that's vishwanath again quite conclusively after the green revolution we transformed into a rice and wheat consuming nation from a people who ate a wide variety of grains and vegetables but what kind of food consuming people are we turning into today the market that is the consumer largely dictates what farmers grow and by that i mean it's us in these massive cities who are playing a bigger and bigger role in determining what food gets grown vishwadeep and vishwanath push this idea further so if you are following a market based model there is no other way than not to start from the demand and the consumer is the king but uh, are there elements of the market economy that can be used to invigorate the rural economy and not look at it as beneficiaries for your subsidies and benevolence etc and then you'll figure out that rice is bad for you is bad for the ecosystem may be good for you but it's bad for the ecosystem sugar is deadly for the ecosystem sugar causes river water wars sugar causes distress farming in maharashtra you know that uh, only 4% of the land is under sugar cane but it consumes about 60% of the water right so each and every one of those choices that we make in in our homes has great amplified impact on the hinterland on the on the jungle fix of our country and if we want to fix the water problem of our country it starts from our home so if the consumer is king and that can have both good and bad effects what does sustainably grown local food look like can individual demand drive a movement for better more reliable more sustainable food given all that we know about harmful agricultural practices water scarcity stressed out soil climate change and all the messages we have heard about what's actually good for us How then should we think about how we grow, what we eat, and how we make sure there's enough for everyone? Bangalore, the city where we live, gets most of its vegetables from peri-urban farms on the outskirts of the city. These are farms that rely on water that flows from the three valleys the city is built on, through riverine systems that carry mostly sewage and untreated waste from the city. Do you remember watching our famous foaming frothing lakes on TV? They've been in the news of late and are testament to the neglected wastewater systems in our city. But the other side of the story that we hear less about is that these systems provide nutrient-rich irrigation for many of the city's farms. This city alone generates close to 1400 to 1500 million liters per day. the previous thinking was that this water is going away to the kaveri but what when one examines the peri urban area you find that farmers are pumping this untreated waste water huge distances 6 to 7 kilometers spending enormous amounts of money 25 lakh 27 lakh rupees and why are they doing that because 
the groundwater source which they were dependent on has run dry. So here you have groundwater running dry, here you have nutrient-rich water from the city coming in. So farmers are putting two and two together and trying to see how they can use this untreated wastewater. In my very first serious job, I studied how wastewater was being used by farmers in agriculture. That's right, I'm talking about sewage. It was definitely not the glamorous type of work I thought I would be doing, but it did lead to an awakening of sorts about the environment, about agriculture, and about what it takes to grow food. Because you see, wastewater is an integral part of agriculture. It's used worldwide, not just in poor cities, to grow food, especially in what we call peri-urban areas, the transient regions that circumvent cities, and where a lot of our food comes from. And they have found ways of managing the domestic uh, effluent. They pump it into ponds, allow it to settle down. A sort of a wetland crop comes up there naturally. And so once the water is filtered in this wetland, it becomes more amenable for the soil. They figured out that they need less fertilizers if they, or no fertilizers at all. They figured out a crop palette which can withstand the nutrient content uh, of this wastewater. For example, there's a variety of rice called rajini which seems to do better than other forms of rice. They grow mulberry, they grow non-edible foodstuff, but they grow edible foodstuff too. And they do it seasonally. So they recognize that in the monsoons, the wastewater is diluted, but in summertime, it gets concentrated. So crops vary based on the seasons. The first instinct is recoil at the thought of food being grown in shit, or at least shitty water. It's actually a great way to close the loop. And if a set of health and safety measures, regulations and protocols are put in place, many of which already exist, even the WHO recognizes it as a practice, wastewater can and should become a great source for irrigation. But simple precautions like just washing the produce uh, with uh, clean water is a good way of doing it. Peeling the skin is a good way of dealing with it. So, uh, and at the farmyard, at the farm level itself, farm workers can, can take basic precautions so that they're not uh, impacted by the wastewater. It's all doable. The unfortunate thing is that we aim for standards of perfection. We do not uh, aim to do things better. And so marginally improving things is a better way of approaching this issue than to put on a standard and say, hey, we will, we're not going to use this food or we're going to ban this food. The other is the absence of a dialogue with the farmer himself or herself as to what their challenges are, what their response has been to the wastewater, and what can be done together to make sure that our food is safe, that the farmer's occupation is uh, not challenged, that his livelihood continues, and that he is not at risk from, uh, from health issues, and that overall that the environment is not at risk. Amongst a small segment of urban India, there's an aspirational shift to eat healthy food. It's driven by a combination of things. A suspicion of food that's packed with pesticides, a desire to become more healthy, and to a degree, environmental concerns. Parvez Mullah owns and runs my neighborhood's small organic shop. I was in the corporate world selling, so I, the last thing I sold was cleaning chemicals. I couldn't survive for more than uh, a year in that, in that place. Parvez didn't always have horrible corporate jobs, and his transition to working in this new alternative business has led him to observe some things. The work before that was kind of good. I used to enjoy the work there. I used to enjoy the kind of company I used to have. 
and yeah that's one thing that doesn't happen in the in the alternate sector you, you get you tend to get lonely because you don't get too many people who are doing the same thing and everywhere you are out of place so in most of the social uh, um you know social gatherings or parties i go to i'm always the one who's because i don't have anything to talk having experienced difficulty in explaining our own jobs at parties think of wastewater irrigation and agriculture we weren't at first sure of what he meant yeah but it is it's not something that everybody wants to get into i don't know some of people feel guilty when you start talking about farmers uh, local food how it can help and i've seen this there happens a lot of people that people start thinking that uh, oh i should do something and and so they tend to avoid these kind of conversation which which makes them reflect there is a palpable discomfort and while people are generally quite enthusiastic to hear about organic food and talk about its benefits parvez notes that their reasons for doing that are somewhat limited so you know what the the reason people come to my store is because they worried about their own health it is nothing to do with environment farmer local food my maybe having 1% of my customers who are who are really attuned to this word organic food and and local food but otherwise for them it is health parvez's organic produce isn't always certified he doesn't really believe that certification is worth anything he says it's more valuable to verify the source of the product and find other ways to determine its quality but his consumers seem to feel that formal certification is the way to go so because we are probably educated in a uh, in a western education sense we look at the west as as an example for anything so because the west says this has to be certified that's why we start asking about certification and uh, and they don't think okay in the west certification means something else in india certification is something else uh, so you certify tea but you can sell coffee in the same certification and nobody in india checks whether you are selling tea and coffee both or only coffee or only tea so generally what people do who certify is they they pick up certification for a few items and then they will sell a lot more under that certification and none of the consumers nor the retailers nor the distributors are bothered to even look at what the certification is for the other issue with certification is exclusivity in in my own experience of having worked on uh, organic agriculture in this uh, in europe i mean this concepts of value chain development and getting small holders into the market we have we focused on investing very heavily on small holders but a limited set of small holders to link them to premium markets let's say internationally or nationally and what we have seen is that as a result of that you can serve a very niche set of consumers as well as your producer base remains small whereas the need of the hour is if if that food is good for certain people whether it's elites or those who can afford it it should be good for anyone and so how do you flatten the value chains that grow vertically touch very few customers and very few producers How do you bring in the other smaller farmers who grow the same kind of food in an ecologically friendly way who may not be able to comply with formal certification requirements So what Parvez does is he only sources produce from a long established farmers cooperative that he found early on when looking for places to source from His farmers are located in Devanhalli just 37 kilometers north of Bangalore and he visits them regularly and uses his network of people working in environmental organizations to help him vet other suppliers he finds this to be more effective the experts he relies on are often way more vigilant and use more discretion when approving a supplier his one rule is that the farms have to be close to the city 
And that's because sustainability is not just about organic food. It's also about local food. Lettuce, broccoli, uh, kale, pink, pink cabbage, and uh, uh, zucchini, then something like that. So when I, when I tell them that this, this is not something that you can eat here because this is not local food, uh, the, question, the question that comes back to them is that somebody is already giving it to me. What's almost worse is most consumers, even those who shop organic, still want packaged food because that is what is considered to be healthy food. Parvez's ideal customer has less of a dissonance when it comes to these choices. When they, when they see that it is in plastic, if they have the sensitivity to say, okay, can I opt for something which is not in plastic? So that sensitivity towards the environment. Can I opt something directly which comes from a cooperative of farmers? That sensitivity to the farmers. So I look for that kind of a customer. Bangalore, with its population of 10 plus million, is set to double by 2031. And these new people will also change how one thinks of what is local. As Vishwanath puts it, the modern metropolis is a strange, hungry beast. Where is this extra population of 10 million, which is imagined by 2031, going to come from? Okay, we, have, we will have local migration. So local food habits will come, but we'll have outside migration. And people who come from, let's say, other parts of the country will bring their own food habits to the city. And now, what is then local for a city, for a metropolis? Uh, that becomes a question to answer. If, let's say, for example, a North Indian comes and there's a habit of a particular form of vegetable, peas, for example, or cauliflowers. These were never local. Now, local will then become this too. So how do we address the challenge? With food, we have to define who or what is the sector that we want to impact the most and how we want to do it. So we want to be healthy as consumers. That's one cynic one not as consumers. But as producers, what is the justice that we want to deliver? And if when we deliver that justice, what should be the form of production so that it doesn't lay too much burden on the ecosystem, both the ecological ecosystem as well as the social ecosystem? These are the challenges before us. And so so therefore, I say that let's get more local in terms of uh, the overall imagination of both production and consumption and say, how should we imagine prosumption? Uh, and that's a different imagination than what the West has done. I think when we are on an economic trajectory of growth, we should imagine it from an Indian perspective, truly. So the dialogue cannot be confined to only the food producers or the food consumers. The dialogue has to overarch over several sectors. And is that, are those platforms available? They're not. So we need to grow those platforms of dialogue. Think of all the food we share. Right now, asymmetrical forces determine what we grow and the people with the least amount of knowledge about how things are grown have the greatest amount of power in determining what we grow. And we need to understand ourselves what it takes to grow food. And maybe the best way for us to do that is to start growing some of it ourselves. And that's the end of the show. Before we roll the credits, thank you all for listening and thank you very, very much for donating. Our fundraising campaign is still on and will continue until the end of the series. So please do go to our website www.inthefieldindia.org and support us. Please also do take the time out to rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you're listening to us. It really helps spread the word. And for this show, thanks to Vishwadeep Ghosh, 
Vishwanath Srikandaya, Parvez Mullah and Vikhar Ahmed Said. In the Field is produced and hosted by Radhika Vishwanathan and Samyukta Varma. We are supported by Rohini Nilekani Philanthropies. And so until next time from the entire team, Priya, Santosh and Hollis, a, a big thank you and please do subscribe for updates on our website and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We're at In The Field India.